Well, happy Valentine's, everyone, and we pray that this day would be a wonderful time when you could spend with loved ones. I know that it's a a difficult year, um, and it's a different year. It's a different Valentine. So once again, there's a time where, you know, we spend with our loved ones, and whether you're in a relationship or not, we just, I pray that you just enjoy fellowshipping with the people that you're close to. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a, kind of like a history buff, or especially when it comes to World War II. I, I read books, I, you know, watch movies about World War II, but, you know, in the Pacific Theater, there was this major whose name was Greg Pappington, Pappy Boynton, and he created a U.S. Marine Air Group consisting of misfits, and they called themselves the Black Sheep Squadron because these pilots couldn't fit in any other squadron. And this was the same squadron that they uh, developed a movie, uh, TV series uh, about called the Black Sheep Squadron. And this was unusual for you to put together a group of misfits, especially in a air combat unit. Why? Because you had a wingman, and you relied on one another. Your wingman had to be disciplined. Your wingman had to be loyal in order to what? Protect you. You had each other's back. So the last thing you would want would be to put a group of misfits together who re- whose lives relied on them, whose mission, who pe- the people on the ground relied on them accomplishing their mission. Right? It, wasn't, it was unheard of to put a squadron like this together. It didn't make any sense. And most people thought this could be dangerous to have a group of pilots like this together. However, in the course of six weeks, they shot down 57 enemy aircraft with, a poss- with nine probable aircraft shot down. And no one would have ever thought such an undisciplined group of pilots could accomplish what they did. And they became one of the most famous air groups in World War II. You know, but Jesus did the same thing. You know, he changed the world through a group of misfits. And it's, you know, throughout my career, um, I've asked many, many people if they would help serve the ministry in the church. And more times than not, the, the main reason, one of the main reasons people give me for not serving is the fact that, you know, I'm not qualified. I don't know enough. I'm not experienced enough. You know, God can't use me yet, right? And that might be you. Or, or maybe you might not even know Jesus right now. You, you want to get close to this God. You know, you're going through a difficult time, and you, your heart just longs to be close to a God who cares about you. But somehow in the recesses of your mind, you think, you know what? I'm not good enough. You know, I'm a misfit. You know, I, I don't belong. Um, and today, we're going to learn that Jesus can use anyone with a willing heart. And as we learn to live like Jesus this year, we need to learn how he lived his life and who he chose to carry out his mission after he died and the fact that he can use you, Right? And today we're going to look at the, the men that Jesus chose. And next week we're going to take a look at their calling um, and what actually motivated them 
to um, follow Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to Mark 3, chap- uh, verse 13. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And this is what the, uh, Apostle, uh, Mark, John Mark writes. And Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called those he wanted, and they came to him. Now, this is really important because we see here that Jesus, the all-knowing, the almighty God, went up to a mountain to choose those that he wanted to follow him, to become his disciples or apostles. And this was different because Jesus handpicked his disciples. Because back in Jesus' day, a rabbi would never handpick um, his disciples. What they would do is if you wanted to learn from a certain teacher, you would have to go up to that teacher and ask if um, this teacher would be, if he would disciple you. And it'd be up to that teacher to decide whether or not he felt that you were qualified to be his disciples. And so in this case, we see that Jesus, people didn't come to Jesus. Jesus handpicked his disciples. And let's go on to um, verse 14. And he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Okay, verse um, 16. And these were the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. And verse 19, the most infamous of all of them. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And so these are the 12 men that Jesus chose that he handpicked to carry out, to teach them um, what he wanted them to know so they could carry on his mission after he passed on, right? And so the first one we see is of the 12 is Peter. Now, Peter, we know, is a reckless, and I'll call him the reckless leader, right? And at the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus went out to pray, and this was right before he was going to be arrested to go before the uh, religious leaders and ultimately be um, found guilty and then crucified to the cross. And this is a moment where he realized his time was up on earth and that he was going to have to experience, you know, physical suffering and pain. And he wanted his disciples to be with him, to pray with him as he was going to have to go through this very, very difficult situation. And so the religious leaders come to arrest Jesus. And this is what we see in John 18:10. John verse chapter 18 verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. And in verse 11, it says Jesus commanded Peter, "Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me?" And here we see Peter, right? Peter sees these people coming to address to arrest Jesus. So he pulls out his sword and he strikes the servant of the high priest, right? And he cuts off his ear. Now, it just shows how bad of a marksman Peter was cuz no one with a sword tries to cut off a person's ear. Right? He was actually going for his head and he missed. 
You know, but this shows the reckless nature of Peter. Yes, he wanted to protect his Lord and Savior, but he didn't realize if he had killed this one servant, then he too would have been executed. He never would have been able to be the leader he was to, to be the foundation of the church if he had killed this one person. He didn't even think about the consequences. He just threw his sword and swung, right? And another instance, when they were in the, um, uh, in the upper room having the Last Supper, you know, and Jesus is telling his disciples that, you know, just in a few moments, you know, in just a few moments, you guys are going to scatter and you guys are going to fall away um, from each other. And in Matthew 26, verse 31, we see, and Jesus told them, this very night you will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus is telling them in just a few moments, you will be scattered and you will be scattered out of fear. And then Peter replied in verse 33, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the other disciples said the same thing. And Jesus is telling his his disciples that they are going to abandon him and scatter out of fear. And then Peter, Peter, their leader, throws all of the other disciples under the bus. He said, these guys, Jesus, these guys may leave you, but I never will. In fact, you know, I even if I have to die for you, I will never disown you. Once again, Peter is doing and saying things before he even thinks about it. He thinks he knows himself. But what happens, right? We know the story. A young girl, you know, accuses him or identifies him as being with Jesus. And then what does he do? Three times vehemently, he denies knowing Jesus. And just moments before, he accuses his disciples of Abandoning Jesus, but not him, right? And this was Peter. He was brash. He was hard-headed. He was a guy who put his foot in his mouth. And this was the type of person that Jesus chose to be the leader of the disciples. Well, let's go on and look at James and John, the hotheads, right? And in Luke nine fifty one we see an account about them and why they were so hot-headed, right? And as the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent his messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Now, you have to remember that Samaritans and Jews did not like one another. They were prejudiced against one another. And a Jewish person would never even go through Samaria. That's how much they didn't like them. They would skirt around it rather than going through it because they wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. Let's pick it up in verse uh, 53. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. 
But when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. Right. And these were the hot headed disciples. Right. They were known for the fiery temperament. And here they were going to go and stay in Samaria. And all of, but then the people there denied them. And so what did they do? Rather than to say, okay, let's find someplace else. No, that Jesus, what do you want us to do? Let's rain down fire from heaven and destroy them. And this wasn't just a euphemism. This wasn't just wishful thinking. Why? Because they had seen the power of Jesus. They had seen Jesus do these amazing miracles. And so they knew the power of Jesus. So what they wanted, well, what they were uh, suggesting is that Jesus used his power to call fire down from heaven and just destroy these people, kill them for what? For denying them room and board. That's how hot-headed these guys were, right? The sons of thunder. So here we see Jesus picking a reckless leader and two hotheads, James and John, to form his inner circle. (laughs) These were the people that were closest to Jesus. And let's go on. Andrew, and he was the one who brought individuals to Jesus. Now, there was a scene early on in Jesus' ministry where people were following him. They were listening to his teaching. And it was getting late in the evening. And so um, the people were starting to get hungry. And there was 5,000 men in this group. And we think that there's probably 8,000 or more with women and children in this group. And so Jesus knows they're hungry. And he knows He has to feed them. And so he tells his disciples, hey, I want you to go and feed these eight, this crowd of 5,000 plus people. And they were out in the middle of nowhere. No grocery stores, no 7-Elevens, nothing, right? And so they're thinking, how are we going to feed these 8,000 people, right? And this is where we pick it up with um, Andrew in John chapter 6, verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how how far will they go among so many? And here we see, and we don't really know a whole lot about Andrew, but we see Andrew bringing this boy with five loaves of bread and two fish to Jesus to feed this group of over 5,000 people. Right, And this kind of shows Andrew's faith in Jesus also. Because, you know, for us who have our fellowship time here um, after church when we used to meet, and we probably had about maybe 200 people. Let's say the team forgot that we were having um, Connect Cafe. And they said, oh, no, we don't have any food, right? And then I went up to this kid, and he goes, well, you know what? I have two, um, three Big Macs, and I have five fish fillet sandwiches. You know, and I would never think to bring them to the group and say, hey, here's a guy that has Big Macs and a few filet fish sandwiches, right? I would say, that's crazy. I would just say, well, thank you, but, you know, eat it yourself, knowing that you can't feed people, 200 people without a mouth. But Andrew was the one who brought people to Jesus, even though this little boy had nowhere near the amount of food to feed those individuals, he still brought 
this young boy to Jesus, right? And then we also see in John chapter 1, verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard about what John, John the Baptist, had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas when translated is Peter. So once again, Andrew um, comes in contact with Jesus. And the first thing he does is he brings his brother uh, Peter to meet Jesus. Unlike his brother Peter, Andrew excelled in a personal ministry. And he wasn't known for drawing crowds of people to Jesus. You know, from what we know, he drew uh, people one at a time. He didn't have this big ministry like his brother. Remember in the book of Acts where Peter got up and preached his first sermon? 3,000 people came to know Jesus. And that was Peter, but not Andrew. Andrew only brought one person at a time. And you would think if you're going to start this movement to reach a world, the world, you would want charismatic speakers. You would want a leaders with a charismatic personality that could draw the multitudes to your cause, right? And that would make the most sense. But here Jesus chose Andrew, quiet Andrew, who just brought people one at a time, one at a time. He chose a quiet person who was drawn to the small things, while his brother, Peter, was drawn to the larger thing. And next we see Philip, the pragmatist, right? And once again, this takes place in the the part of the Bible where Jesus was about to feed the 5,000. Right, So this is the backdrop. So in John 6, verse 5, When Jesus looked up and saw the great, multi- great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And he asked him this only to test him, for he, had, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And, and Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And so here Jesus sees this great multitude of people. He knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to perform a miracle to feed them. But he asks Philip, he says, um, hey, where should we go to buy people, uh, buy bread for these people? And Philip was a pragmatist. He was the one who was a processor person. He was the one who thought things through. And he's telling Jesus, what are you talking about? It makes no sense, right? Number one, we're out in the middle of nowhere. And number two, it would take a half a year's wages just to buy uh, enough bread so each person can have just one bite. And that's what he was. He was a pragmatist. Now, Jesus was um, going to lead a movement that relied on faith, faith in him, where there are a lot of decisions that you needed to make that didn't make sense, that you would just have to trust God and obey God, even though what God might be asking you to do makes no sense at all. And this is hard for a pragmatist who have to think things through, where things have to make sense in order for them to move forward. Jesus calls 
a pragmatist. Because Philip was guided more by practical considerations than by faith. Once again, this movement would require faith. And Jesus called a pragmatist. Next, we see Bartholomew or Nathaniel. And he was the one who struggled with prejudice, right? In John uh, chapter 1, verse 45. And Philip found Nathaniel or Bartholomew and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, said Philip. And this is interesting because the people of Judea around who lived in Jerusalem, they looked down on people who lived in Galilee. And all of the disciples, except for one, came from Galilee, right? However, the people in Galilee were prejudiced and they looked down upon the people who lived in Nazareth. And so this is why Bartholomew or Nathaniel had this response because he grew up in an area that were prejudiced against people from Nazareth. So when he hears about the Messiah being coming from Nazareth, he just can't believe it. He can't believe it because in his own heart, he was so prejudiced against Nazareth, uh, the people from Nazareth or the Nazarenes. He just believed that nothing good, nobody good, nobody who would amount to anything could come out of Nazareth. All right. And this is who Jesus called, somebody who was prejudiced. I mean, what would happen if all of a sudden you found out that um, one of our leaders uh, chose uh, the Torrance Karen to be one of our, the people that were going to lead a movement, right, in an Asian community? You say, you know, that's crazy. There's no way you would want a person like her who's prejudiced against Asians to lead a ministry to Asians, But that's who Jesus called, someone who had deep-seated prejudice against a group of individuals. Next, we see Matthew, the despised tax collector. And Jesus went out from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, tax collectors were amongst the most hated people in the Jewish community. They actually, Jewish people absolutely hated tax collectors. They considered them one of the worst kind of sinners possible, right? For the financial burden they put on people. And yet Jesus calls one of the most despised people in the community. He calls one of the worst type of sinners to the Jewish community to be one of his disciples. Then he calls Thomas the pessimist in John 20, 24. Now Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with his disciples when Jesus came. Now this is after Jesus was crucified and after Jesus resurrected. So he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came back after his resurrection, right? 
And so all the other disciples told them and said, We have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said to them, Unless I see the nails on his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Right? Once again, Thomas, the doubter or the pessimist, all the disciples said, Yay, you know what Jesus, what Jesus said was true about himself. You know, he was resurrected. We, we, we were talking with him. And Thomas was saying, Yeah, right. You know, unless I see him for myself, unless I put my finger into the wound where the nails were or pierced, put my hand in the side where that spear went, I'm not going to believe. Once again, Thomas was a guy who believed the glass was half empty. He was the Eeyore of the group. He was a woe is me type of group. He was the one who would suck the life out of a movement with, a, with his um, pessimism, right? Now, why, you would think once again that Jesus is starting to solve start a movement here. And he would not want a person who viewed life as the glass is always half empty, right? No one wants to start a movement with people who always look at the glass half empty because they're always telling you why you can't do it. You would want somebody who has the enthusiasm and who has the passion to say, you know what? Hey, I don't understand this. It may not make sense, but you know what? It's going to work. It's going to work. Why? Because Jesus said it's going to work. No. He chose a pessimist. Simon, the next is Simon Zealot, the terrorist. We don't know anything about Simon other than he was a zealot or terrorist, right? And, and, you know, back then, um, the Roman Empire occupied the nation of Israel. And so the Jewish people hated, hated the Roman government. And so they hated them because they were an oppressive Government And so what there were bands of people, terrorists, who wanted to overthrow the government. And so we see Jesus calling Simon the Zealot. Or like it'd be like some, Jesus calling somebody from ISIS to join his group. Some uh, group of people who violently wanted to overthrow the government. And this is what um, Simon probably wanted. He probably, the Messiah is here. Let's get our swords together. Let's get the group, let's get all of the militia together. And what we're going to do is we are going to take over the Roman government by force, right? By force, by violence, right? And Jesus' kingdom came into being what? Through what? Through peace. Through love, through mercy, through compassion, not by the sword, not through violence. And yet Jesus called this one terrorist into his group. Finally, Judas Iscariot, the traitor, right? In John thirteen seventeen. Now that you know, this is Jesus talking. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And I'm not referring to all of you. I know that I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. And Jesus is just telling the group, you know what, guys? I chose you. But I also know that one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to turn against me. 
And Jesus' purpose to come here on this earth was to die for his sin. And he chose somebody to help carry that out. He chose a traitor. He chose somebody who would eventually um, betray him. Now, the, you know, I'm not going to get into the fact was, was that did Judas have his own free will or was this just ordained by God? Because there were prophecies in the Old Testament of Judas betraying Jesus. But we see that in order to fulfill Jesus' mission, he had to choose somebody who would ultimately betray him. So the question is this. Why would Jesus choose such misfits to change the world? If you and I were put on a mission, and you and I actually are on a mission, right? You and I are here to carry out the Great Commission. So in order to do this, why would we as a church choose a a band of misfits in order to change the world? Well, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting from verse 26. And the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you who were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to change the strong. Shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. This right here answers why Jesus chose such a misfit group of individuals to change the world. None of them were wise by human standards. They weren't influential. They didn't have a lot of money. They were blue-collar type of guys, right? You know, they weren't of noble birth. You know, they weren't wise. You know, they weren't educated. You know, they were despised. He's despised. Matthew was despised, Right? But Jesus chose them, what? To change the world. Why? So that none of them could boast that it was through their power, through their intellect, through their upbringing, that they were able to start this movement that would change the world. And that's so hard because Jesus chose blue-collar individuals. And for us who live in an educated uh, culture in the U.S., a lot of us think that, you know what, if Jesus, if we were going to choose somebody, we were going to cho- choose somebody from the white-collar world to change the world. Why? Because right now we rely on those of individuals who are white-collar to make a difference in this world. But Jesus chose the blue-collar workers. Why? Because he saw what they could become and how they could change through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, you had a terrorist. Yes, you had a, uh, a despised sinner. Yes, you had these guys who were hot-headed, impatient. Yes, you had a leader who was reckless, right? But Jesus said, you know what? This is the way you are right now. I see your potential. I know how the Holy Spirit could change you. This is why I called you. I didn't call you for who you are right now. I'm calling you because you have certain skill sets and a personality that through the work of the Holy Spirit is going to change this world. 
Jesus chooses somebody like you to change the world. And all it takes to be used by Jesus is a willing heart. Let's look at 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. Israel wanted, this is a, just a quick background, Israel wanted a king because all the other nations had a king. But in that time, God was a king. They lived in a theocracy, right? But they pleaded with God to have a king. And so God allowed them to choose a king, and they chose Saul. Now, Saul was probably the best-looking male in the kingdom, right? He was of great physical statue. He was a valiant warrior, but he didn't have a heart after God. And he sinned, and he disobeyed God, and so God removed him from being the king, and now they're looking for a king to replace him. And this is when they were looking for King David in Samuel 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. Here before the Lord. So he goes to Jesse and sees David's brother. And he sees him and goes, Surely this is a man that is going to be the next king. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So when Jesus chooses people to serve him, he does not look at outward appearances. He doesn't look at the diplomas. He doesn't look at outbringing. He doesn't look at intelligence. He doesn't look at how skillful or how knowledgeable you are. He looks at none of that. Jesus only looks at a heart, a heart that's willing to serve him and a heart that's willing to obey him. Those are the only qualifications of a person that Jesus is looking for. All right, And we're going to talk about that next week. So please join us. But once again, Jesus chose these individuals, not because of their outward appearances, not because of their accomplishments, but he chose them, all but at least one, because of their heart. Because of their heart. So what's our weekly challenge? Well, I'd like you to read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 29, and 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 7 every day. And I want you to ask this question. Do you believe that Jesus can use somebody like you to do his work? With your experience, with your gifts or skill sets or lack of, do you think Jesus can use somebody like you to do his work? Or, if you don't know Jesus, do you think you are the type of person that Jesus would call to follow him? And I guarantee you, if you look at this list of misfits of whom we all are, you do qualify as somebody that Jesus would call to follow him. Right? Is your heart willing to serve him? Like I said, God's not looking at your outward appearance. He doesn't care about your accomplishments. He's he's looking at your heart. Is your heart willing to serve him? And then take three action steps this week to allow Jesus to use you to do his work. You know, just say, okay, God, if you want my heart, you've got it. Three times this week, can you use me to do your work? Worship team, could you please come forward?
Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your wisdom in choosing these mitzvahs. Lord, I know that as a leader, I would have never choose, chosen any one of these individuals to lead a movement to further your kingdom. But Father, you did. And you realize, Father, that we are all misfits in one way, shape, or form. And I thank you that you don't look at our experience. You don't look at our upbringing. You don't uh, look at our, our skill sets. You just look at our heart. So, Father, I pray for each person who's listening um, this morning that they would truly believe that they were worthy to be used by you. No matter what they've done, no matter their lack of experience or what they don't know, Father, that they all are qualified to be used by you. And you choose them so that none of us, none of us could boast and say that it was because of my education. It was because of my discipline. It was because of my hard work that we were able to accomplish any of that. Father, we could never boast for the work that was done by your Holy Spirit. And that's what you want. All the glory to go to you. And so, Father, may we have the courage to go out and serve you. To have the willing heart to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. To further your kingdom and carry out the mission that you started over 2,000 years ago. In your son's name I pray, amen.